Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the gift of this day. We are very conscious of the fact that your word has instructed us as to how we are to order our lives, and we desire to do that through this day. May the principles of your word and the truth of your word permeate our hearts. We thank you so much for the blessings that we have in this life. And we thank you as well for the assurance that we have of life to come. The promises of your word are so overwhelming that we cannot completely and totally comprehend them. But our Father, we pray that we would live in the light of them. May today be a day that refreshes us in our spiritual walk with the Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I've got, uh, I've got a couple odds and ends here I want to show you before we get to uh, our next course in archaeology. Uh, but uh, Yeah, we're late, we know. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of a story. Uh, Let's see. How many of you knew my father? You, all right. My father was... Now, fortunately for you, I was the pastor before, you know. But my father, when I was growing up, was absolutely radical. Radical about not being on time, but being early on time. You catch my drift? Oh, really? Harry, you have the same... Uh, no, I don't want to be late. Uh, Harry, Harry, I'm looking at your wife. <laughs> anyway, back then there was the... Uh, in the mid-1950s, we lived in Kearns, and the church facility was in Murray. And those of you who know the Salt Lake Valley probably do not remember when the road between Kearns and Murray only had the old 4500 route. You remember that? This is before uh, 4700 South went through and before 5400 South went through. Yes. Did they allow cars on this? <laughs> well, actually, actually uh, almost, Harry, almost. But anyway, uh, there was a program called, uh, I forget what the program was. It, was a, it, was kind of, it wasn't back to the Bible or anything like that. But uh, they, they, at the end of this program, uh, they always sang, uh, the doxology. Uh, no, no, they sang the, the high priestly prayer in, uh, in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his faith. Anyway, that, there used to be a song to that. Some of you probably have heard it. That program ended at 9.30. The service started at quarter to 10. That's when Sunday school started. And then the service was at 11 o'clock. As we were riding in, if that song ended before we got to church, we were late. <laughs> if it ended, if we got there before it ended, we were on time. So we always had to be 15 minutes before. 
Us kids could never understand that. Why do you have to get there so early? <laughs> you want to know what my dad's excuse was? You might have a flat tire on the way to church. <laughs> and if you have a flat tire on the way to church, you don't want to be late. And don't blame it. You know, then all of my years of growing up, we never had a flat tire. Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, let me get my brain on here. All right, I've got, I've got a couple things. Some of you have seen some of this already, but uh, let me, if I may, just show you. And I, I passed this on to you uh, only because if I don't, I'll forget it. But anyway, uh, this kind of, uh, what's Ken up to now, all right? Anyway, here we go. I, uh, I, I got this from a, a friend of mine named Steve Lewis. Uh, he used to be the president of Rocky Mountain Bible College and Seminary over in the Denver area and the, uh, and the Colorado Springs area. And he was doing a seminar and he presented a skeleton of this and I said, Steve, I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna develop it a little bit further. Anyway, he was talking about the decline of complete biblical truth. Some of you have already seen this, but let me, if I may, just, uh, just go through it real quickly. It starts out with the Bible. Everybody likes to believe the Bible. But over time, something happened. And that is, people came to the Bible and said, God, I don't understand. I'll, I, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. So people read the Bible, and they say, in order to communicate it, uh, we need to boil it down. You know, if you got a thought that's happy, boil it down. Make it short, quick, snappy, boil it down. Anyway, you know that poem. Anyway, so they make an extrapolation, kind of a, they distill what the Bible says. They put it in a nice, neat little package. Then someone comes along and says, wait a minute, God needs a little more help. This is a little bit too confusing. So they go on a little bit further and they make extrapolation number two. And they start reading the extrapolation number two and lo and behold, what happens? God needs a little bit more help. You know, we need to make it clear and simple. Then they make extrapolation number three. Now, an extrapolation is basically kind of a distill it, get the high points, and disregard everything else. What usually happens is, well, we've got this extrapolation, so we don't need the Bible anymore. <laughs> we've got extrapolation number one, or we got uh, extrapolation number three, so we don't need extrapolation number four. I'm gonna get my numbers one, and we don't need number two, so let's just stick with extrapolation number three. What does extrapolation number three usually turn out to be? Well, it turns out to be a creed. And over the centuries, we have all had all kinds of creeds developed. This is what we believe. Kind of a miniature doctrinal statement. And down through the centuries, so that people understand exactly what the Bible says, we'll do this. Well, what usually happens is the Bible is there, but it just doesn't have the teeth. 
and there are certain things in it, eh, they just don't really matter. But these things in the creed are the things that are really important, all right? Now, that's the first one. I got that from Steve Lewis. The next one is something that I found years and years ago. I made a chart out of it. I showed this to you probably three or four months ago, but let me show it to you again. Over time, things have developed. From the New Testament era, you had a mainstream of biblical authority and what has happened over the years in understanding the biblical authority is that there were traditions developed. And uh, after a while, they said, ah, ah, we gotta, we got to scrap the traditions. Let's go to reason. So they started looking at the Bible, and they came up with all kinds of other stuff. Starting in the 1900s, the emphasis in understanding the Bible was feelings. You know, if it feels good, then we'll accept it. Now, what has happened over the years, and I am changing the word up here to mainstream of biblical understanding. How are we going to understand the Bible? In one case, it was through tradition. And uh, that was an emphasis for a long time. Then... People got a little weary of tradition, and they started reason. And this is where the Reformation comes in, where people were getting away from this. Then you had something happen where tradition and reason were really quite working, so let's go to feelings or emotion. Now, I'm not saying that all feeling is bad, but I find it very interesting that the charismatic movement started around 1900. Not everybody is charismatic, but that's when it started. They wanted to have a feelings-oriented religion. Okay, what happened? In the tradition era, you had the creeds and the rituals developed. In the reason era, you had denominational institutions develop. The Baptists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians. And believe me, there are, there are fragments of that even to this day. Down here in the feelings era, and this may be debated, you have just independent movements. Uh, Churches don't call themselves, in fact, they're really getting away from it now, starting with uh, the year 2000. They're not saying First Baptist, Second Baptist, First Presbyterian. They're, they're getting away from these names. And everything's kind of an independent movement. And it started right here. All right, one more, all right? I was very strongly influenced during my seminary days to a man named Bruce Walke. Uh, had every course he could take, teach, and he's the one that uh, did the archaeology course that we're springing from today. And uh, <clears throat> he takes credit for all of this, all right? I'm amplifying just a little bit. But I've given you these two other things. This is another one I thought would be kind of interesting for us. How are you going to approach the Bible? Well, May I suggest to you that you can approach the Bible with a series of arrows. 
arrows. All right, hang on. Here we go. You can approach the Bible as before the Bible, above the Bible, beside the Bible, upon the Bible, or under the Bible. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense at all. And some of you look as confused as ever. Hang on, okay? When I say before, above, beside, upon, and under, I am going to put several categories on each of these. The first one, before the Bible, is what is called the neo-Orthodox position. Now, this is not real popular today. And you don't hear about it much, but it has come under a slightly different name. It used to be called neo-Orthodox. Let me, if I may, describe a little bit of what neo-Orthodox is. Neo-Orthodox is a blend of emotion and reason. If it feels good and it is within my intellectual grasp, I will consider it to be truth. The Bible is a great book along with many other books and contains valuable bits of wisdom. It contains so many great sayings that are profound and profitable. As I read parts of it, it will, and here's the key word, it will become the Word of God. It will become the Word. Not all of it is the Word of God, but there are certain parts of it that I like. I can interact with them intellectually, and they will become the Word of God. Much of it will not be for me because it's too offensive or doesn't make sense. It may be okay for others, I won't hold it against them because everyone has a right to their own opinion. All right, that's the neo-orthodox position. The next position is what I'm going to call the liberal approach. They approach the Bible with a great deal of skepticism and criticism. Many think they're just uh, many think they are just too scholarly to accept the sayings of the Bible at face value. One must have a critical mindset to all that is said. It is, its value comes in its ethical principles. The liberals love the ethics of the Bible. However, they are very skeptical about the miracles of the Bible. They don't want the miracles. We'll take the ethics. We won't take the, myth, the miracles. Such things as God creating the world in six days, forgiveness of sin because of the death of one man, re resurrection from the dead, are fanciful concepts. God is really not in control. Everything is left to chance and fate. The next is, are, is this, are, these, are these making sense before the Bible? above the Bible. The next one is traditionalist. Traditionalist, the true value of the Bible comes through history. And in order to fully understand the Bible, one must read the practices of early church fathers. Important traditions and rituals were established as part of the early Christian movement, but were lost over time. Therefore, we must Read the historians, the church fathers, and reading the church story, 
uh, the historians, we find out what the Bible doesn't mention but was practiced. These traditions and rituals, what? Have as much authority as the Bible. The Bible's here, tradition and ritual here, both are authoritative. And basically what these things are doing is just filling in the blanks that the Bible doesn't mention. Roman Catholic, Orthodox, if you've been studying Roman Catholicism, one of the things you discover is they've got a series of tenets, series of rituals. You gotta do these rituals and then everything in life will be complete. Okay, the last two, I'm gonna give you the last two. You may quibble, I may even quibble with the title that I'm giving the last two, all right? By the way, some of you are probably saying, what does this have to do with archeology? span Nothing, <laughs> nothing. But if I don't give it to you now, I'll probably forget. The last two I am suggesting uh, are titles, however, however, uh, I am, I'm flexible, I can change, all right? But you know these terms. The fundamentalist and the evangelical. Now, <laughs> I'm a fundamentalist and I'm an evangelical. And chances are, most of the time, we kind of move back and forth, don't we? depending on the subject, depending on the subject. And I am in no way being critical of one or the other, but there are some tendencies on the part of one or the other that we need to be careful of. The key difference between the tradition, or the fundamentalist and the evangelical is how they interpret the meaning and intent of the Bible. Both of them believe that the Bible is the final authority. No question about it. Both of them believe that everything in the Bible is true and accurate. But it is how it is understood and how it is applied. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? All right, the fundamentalists. You're free to object. You're free to disagree. The fundamentalists see the Bible as a great starting point and often read into it rules and truth to live by according to what they would like to see. Does everybody understand that? The Bible is often used as a proof text document for conduct, lifestyle, and doctrine for what they hope and wish would and could happen. They seek to be legalistic just a little bit as far as the control of life and practice. They use proof text, cross-referencing in what the Bible says and means. Verses are often taken out of context grammatically and historically 
to prove a certain point. I'll be careful on this next one. Oftentimes, there is a cult-like leader. I'm not saying they're cults. I'm saying oftentimes there is a cult-like leader. Now, again, we move back and forth, all right? The evangelical. Now, there's a lot could be said about this, but uh, my time is gonna go pretty fast here. Uh, the key with the evangelical is how they interpret the Bible. They see it as something that must be studied in its original intent context. What was the author saying? Who was he saying it to? How did it fit into the culture and context of what was being said? Uh, they discern the difference between what, how God deals with people over time. Uh, you get the idea. Uh, individual Bible study on the part of evangelicals is very, very important. Now, it's important to the fundamentalists too, but I'm going to suggest to you that it is probably more important to the evangelical because with a cult-like leader, you dare not disagree with the evangelical, there's not necessarily a cult-like leader, so you are free to disagree. Now, are both opinions different? Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. You may now take out your swords and daggers and start throwing at me, but I'm moving on. You guys can stay here. Let's talk about David. So you have this right here. Let's go and talk about the early history of Jerusalem. Uh, we have been looking at archeology. span We've looked at the conquest. We've looked at the date of the Exodus. We've seen the various eras that the archeologists have, the uh, Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and different things of that nature. What we're going to be doing today is looking at the early, early history of Jerusalem. The early history of Jerusalem is an interesting one because the very first time we see the city of Jerusalem, not with that name, but in the book of Genesis. And if you would turn to Genesis chapter 18, or excuse me, 14. Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14, we have a very interesting encounter. encounter whoops. Let me back up. We have a very interesting encounter on the part of Abraham and Melchizedek. Now, forgive me for not putting in the context at this point, but I think that uh, this particular individual becomes the pattern for what our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be like. Several interesting features. It tells us, in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought, a, uh, brought out bread and wine. 
Now he was the priest of the Most High God. The Hebrew phrase is El Elyon, the Most High God. In this period of time, all of these different cities, the Canaanites, had a pantheon of gods. They had a, they had a nature god for everything. Melchizedek comes along, and he is the high priest of one true God, the most high God. Abraham recognizes this, and there is blessing given to this high priest because of the things he is doing and saying. The interesting feature about this king, Melchizedek, is that he is a king and a priest simultaneously, a very, very rare situation in the ancient world. It's interesting that in Old Testament economy, there was the king who controlled the political side, there were the priests that controlled the religious side. It is not until the Lord Jesus Christ comes along that the two are fused together in one person. Melchizedek is the prelude to that. He is from the city of Salem. The next time we see Jerusalem is when Abraham takes his son to a place called Moriah. Now, the name Salem is not in the scriptures at this point. It is simply called Moriah. And uh, if you were to read the story of Genesis chapter 22, Abraham has the final test of his faith. And this final test of faith comes as a response to a message from God in where Abraham is to be obedient by virtually sacrificing or potentially sacrificing his entire future. Everything God has promised him relies on his son, Isaac. Everything. And God is saying, if you really trust me, if you really trust me, I'm going to see if you will sacrifice that because who's more important? Is Isaac more important or am I more important? Is your future more important and what you're hoping for or are you putting your trust in me? Now, we know the story that uh, Abraham goes to Mount Moriah and it's possible, and this is again an artist's rendition, it is possible that Mount Moriah looked something like that. We don't know. This is simply an artist's rendition. It's not developed. It's still way off. It's interesting that as, Mo as Moses, as Abraham is approaching Mount Moriah, the text of scripture tells us that he sees it afar off or at a great distance. Now, Trust me, we kind of get the idea that Mount Moriah is going to be the highest mountain in this area. It really is not. There are other higher mountains in this area. 
But the whole point is that there is a distance between where Abraham leaves his servants that came with him and where he is going to eventually sacrifice Isaac. The distance could have been a half a mile or something of that, just far enough away from the servants, and that's why it says a great distance. Anyway, he comes up to this particular area. That's where he begins the process of the story of Genesis chapter 22. The next time we see the city of Jerusalem, well, we don't see it, do we? Because this is the conquest era. It takes place approximately 600 years later. 600 years, keep that in mind. The, blue, or the, the green represents the first invasion where they split the land, and we went through this a couple weeks ago. The second part of it is that they conquer the lower part of the land of Canaanites. But the question I have is, what city in this conquest is conspicuously absent? Jerusalem is conspicuously absent. It's not even mentioned. It is interesting that when you look at the inheritance, and would you look over in Joshua chapter 15 with me? When you look at the inheritance as it is being distributed, we see something very, very interesting taking place. Because Judah is one of the largest tribes, Judah receives the most land. And in Joshua chapter 15, now the lot for the tribe of the sons of Judah, according to the families, reached the border of, and then it gives us a series of areas that it's going to look at. If you will look closely, starting with verse 20, this is the inheritance of the tribes of Judah according to their family. Then it gives us a list of cities. As you go down through verse 33, in the lowland, there are a list of cities. As you go down through the passage, verse 48, in the hill country. If you look at verse 61, in the wilderness, and these are all of the cities listed that they captured. What we have in Joshua is just a thumbnail sketch of them. But notice, if you will, closely what he says in verse 63. Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites lived with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. They didn't capture Jerusalem. It remained a stronghold for the Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe. Now, 600 years prior to this time, Abraham was there. Melchizedek was a priest of this area. But something happened over time. The Jebusites took it over. As we move a little bit further on, we discover that Jerusalem remains in the hands of the Jebusites. 
How long does it remain in the hands of the Jebusites? Well, a thousand years after the time of Abraham. <coughs> when David becomes the king, his first capital is in Hebron. Hebron or Hebron, depending on how you pronounce it. After a total of seven years, he moves his capital to Jerusalem. And if you have your Bible, turn, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, where we read the story of David capturing the city of Jerusalem. Verse 4 tells us, David was 30 years old when he became king and reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over, the, over all Israel and Judah. Then the next couple verses tell us about how David wanted to relocate his capital to the city of the Jebusites. It is interesting, we don't have time to look at the story completely, but one of the interesting things that we discover is that the Jebusites, the way the city is positioned on this kind of tell, and we've already talked about what a tell is, it was positioned in such a way that it was going to be very, very difficult to conquer because it's on a hill, and this is the Kidron Valley. On the other side is what is called the Tyropean Valley. And in order to conquer it, they had to go up and then over the wall to get it. David says, I want that location for my capital. Now, why it's Jerusalem, we have no idea. He may have heard a word from God. Anyway, he wants the city of Jerusalem for his capital. You remember Bethlehem is just five miles south of this area. David was probably very, very familiar with this particular stronghold of the Jebusites. He had probably passed it many, many times. And he realized, you know, that would be a perfect location for a capital of this country. It is equally positioned between the north and the south to some degree, equally positioned between the east and the west to some degree, so he says, I want that location. So he says to one of his army officials, whoever can capture this city will become my leading general. And so there's a man that does it. He becomes the leading general. Now, the interesting thing is the city is positioned in such a way to where the Jebusites bragged and said, you know, that the blind and the lame can defend our city. It is positioned so well. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen. The leading general, Joab, conquers it. Now, so what do we have? We have a situation in which... There's the encounter with Melchizedek, and for a thousand years, the city just sits there. By the way, from last time, 
Where was the capital of Israel from the time they conquered the land until the conquest of Jerusalem? Remember from last week? Huh? It was in Shiloh. For 400 years, it's in Shiloh. Uh, for reasons we are not told of in the Bible, David decides to move the capital from Shiloh to Jerusalem. And we learned the story last week about how the ark was in their uh, possession of the Philistines. And then finally, David captures the city of Jerusalem and he brings the ark up to the area of Jerusalem. Now, as we move on just a little bit, keep in mind that Jerusalem is positioned where it is, Mount Moriah, Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives. Just a brief distance between them. These are artist renditions of possibly what the city of the Jebusites or the city of David was like. Now the interesting story that goes on from here is that David is, has been the king for many, many years. And one of the things God did not want the kings of Israel to ever do was to number the fighting force. God says, don't, don't depend on the fighting force. Don't depend on the numbers that you have in your fighting force. Just depend on me. Well, in a moment of weakness, we discover that David decides to count the people. And if you'll turn in your Bible to the last chapter of 2 Samuel, we discover the tragic, tragic result of all of this. After David counts the people, God says to David, there's a punishment for your disobedience. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 24. Now again, the angel of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited. Now again, the anger of the Yeah. Uh, it incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. But one of the things that we discover is that God is opposed to this. When you drop down to verse 10, David's heart was troubled after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. Notice he is confessing. He's confessing. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. David realizes the wrong he has done. Verse 11, when David rose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them which I may do to you. You know, this is, this is interesting because sin has its consequences. And in this particular case, 
David is going to be able to choose which consequence of sin. Keep in mind, he's already asked forgiveness. Sin is forgiven. Forgiven. But just because sin is forgiven, it doesn't mean it doesn't have consequences. Verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, One, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Number two. Or would you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Number three, or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who has sent me. David, I'm going to give you a few moments. You think about it. Get back to me and I'll tell God what your answer is. And uh, David can't choose. Verse 14, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let them fall, uh, do not let me fall into the hands of man. So God makes the decision. Here's what's going to happen. Verse 15, 70,000 people in the whole land die. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so what happens? David realizes after all of this that he needs to sacrifice to the Lord. So Gad came to David, verse 18, that day and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So what does he do? Apparently, the city looked a little like this. You have the city of David down here. By the way, an archaeologist, or uh, one time I was in Israel, the, uh, the guide said the best way to understand this is with your thumb. Here is the temple area, and here is the old city of David down here on what is called the Ophel, down here at the bottom. So this is the city of David. The Jebusites are not in control of the city, but the Jebusites are still living around that area. He looks up to the top of Mount Moriah, and the threshing floor, why would the threshing floor be at an elevated area? Anybody? For the wind. Because the wind would carry the chaff away. So David looks up there and he says, I need to go offer a sacrifice on the highest point. Aruna the Jebusite sees David coming up to the hill. And apparently there's an enormous amount of respect for David at this particular point. So what does Aruna do? He says to David, hey, you take the land, you take the oxen, you take everything and offer the sacrifice to the Lord that you need to. David at that particular time says, no, no, you're not going to give it to me because he says down in verse 24, however, the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price for I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God, which cost me 
nothing. So David buys this whole area and he buys the sacrifice. He buys everything for the full price and offers it to the Lord. So after this particular period of time, the land is now in the hands of David. And this again is an artist's rendition. The city of David is down here at the bottom. Eventually Solomon builds the temple way up there at the top. And Jerusalem becomes not only the political capital, but also the spiritual capital of the land from that point onward. It becomes the most famous city, the most important city in all the world. It is where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to eventually establish his rule and reign on this earth. Now, because it is a favored city, does that mean it never suffers any destruction from that point onward? Absolutely not. The city is destroyed and invaded many, many times. Ultimately, it is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Again, it is destroyed by the Romans after the time of Christ. But there's a very interesting principle. The benefits that God gives his people have a great deal of blessing, but benefits do not make God's people exempt from punishment when they disobey. And that's exactly what we see with the nation of Israel. I cannot help but think that that happens not only to cities, not only to countries, but individuals as well. And when we as God's people are blessed as we are, and there is failure on our part to obey God, knowing better, God says, I must punish. I must punish. So the moral of the story is simple. Be faithful to God, and he'll continue to bless us. Be unfaithful to God, even as born-again Christians, even as God's people. And there is a consequence for sin, even if it is forgiven. It's a scary thought, but it is a principle that the Word of God is very, very clear about. Any comments or questions? Next week, we are going to look at the... Uh, well, let me see if I've got some more slides here that I need to show you. Yes, this is another artist's rendition. This is the Ophel, the city of David at the bottom. And then when Solomon built the temple, it's up there on what is called Mount Zion as well. Uh, again, you have the Kidron Valley over here on this side. You have the Tyropean Valley over here. By the way, over the years, both of these valleys have been filled in a little bit as a result of the destruction of these areas. And if you go there, you won't quite see the pronouncement of these valleys as it used to be. 
Another interesting slide is this is a photo of Jerusalem around the turn of the century, probably in the 1920s or 1930s. If you go to Jerusalem today, well, let me go to the next slide. This is what it looks like. Going to Jerusalem today is like visiting a modern city in the United States. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. Okay, comments or questions? Hey, thanks for your attention. I know we covered, as we usually do, we covered material in a lickety split movement. So thank you. Hope this was helpful. And uh, blessings on you. Have a good week.